0: Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. This week's topic, a racist, misogynist, climate-denying nuclear cowboy for a candidate. The Republican Party is paying for its past sins. Let's look beyond the candidates. Everybody loves to hate Donald Trump, except those who love him. And many people fret about Hillary Clinton's scandals. But Trump is the result, not the cause, of the Republican Party's problems. And Hillary Clinton's flaws cannot be dismissed without a look at money in politics. So let's get off the easy candidate bashing and acknowledge what's really happening this electoral season. Let's also look at the fantastic surge of the inner revolution that is transpiring at the same time. So sit down with a cup of tea or cruise down the road or let us entertain you while you do your chores as we bring you an hour of clear thinking, humor, and self-honesty. Call in, too, if you can. We'd love to hear from you. And now, here's Beth.
1: Welcome to all of you. Um, when I first uh, prepared that e-card, which was you know a while ago, I almost said, we can 't imagine what will be going on when we actually do this show, so i 'm not going to put it in the e card well actually i couldn't have imagined what was going what would be going on uh, it's It gets worse every day and it's uh, it, it's 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 getting to be absolutely unimaginable and i 'm feeling kind of upset today, but i 'm going to be here with you i I know that as Someone who speaks for the inner revolution, who supports the inner revolution, we're always looking for oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And we try to give you good news of the inner revolution and help us to feel like things are moving forward. But I have to tell you that this, today I just feel like crying because I'm so distressed about what's happening in our nation today. So if you don't want to hear a grown woman cry, hang up. And if you if you want to hear the rest of the show, please stick with us because we have a lot to talk about today. And we are I'm going to be interviewed by the delightful Helen Hillocks, who interviews me from time to time when I am the guest. Welcome, Good afternoon.
2: Helen. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. I love your show, and I love doing the guest interviewing when it's you as the guest.
1: Well, I, I love it too, Helen. And so we're so happy. So today... We have the dismal news from James. <laughs> what Only an introduction. Some, okay. I mean, the stuff that I feel like crying about, I barely, is not even in the news. Uh, in, I mean, it's a bad, what we have in the news summary is bad enough, but there's worse, of course. So take it away, James.
0: And there's just one more thing I'd like to clarify, and that is, in, in our stand for oneness, we also try to be a stand against separation and uh, the things that, that uh, separate people. So that's one of the reasons this is in the news, so we can uh, try to do better toward oneness with one another as one human family. Okay, here we go. Today we are focusing on the elections, and one of the most frightening turn of events is the shenanigans of a presidential nominee who incites and verbally encourages violence. Does it matter? You bet. We live in a nation already acting out of fear and prejudice. We don't need leaders who fan the flames. We're going to cite three examples from this week alone. You may have missed some of this. Chad Copley, a 39-year-old white man, shot and killed a 20-year-old unarmed black man in Raleigh, North Carolina, claiming that the young man was a hoodlum. The young man, Kuren Rodney Thomas, was leaving a party and walking with a friend to a parked car when he was shot. Copley told a dispatcher that there were, quote, black males outside my freaking house with firearms, unquote, according to 9-11 audio. He shot Thomas from his garage. Copley is now being charged with murder. We wish this was an isolated instance. In fact, many police officers themselves are distraught by white racism against black community members. So here's a really interesting story from the Washington Post, May the 6th of 2015, which we'd like to share with you. it's old but very relevant so here goes people please stop making my job so difficult. That's the opening of a discussion in Protect and Serve Reddit's community of law enforcement officers. In other words, this is from a cop who is sick of being called by racist whites who are sadly paranoid and making his life more difficult. The poster who goes by the handle quote SF7, Unquote, and has been verified as a law enforcement officer by the forum's moderators, goes on. So I'm working last week and get dispatched to a call of, quote, suspicious activity, unquote. Y'all want to know what the suspicious activity was? Someone walking around in the dark with a flashlight and a crowbar? Nope. Someone walking into a bank with a full face mask on? Nope. It was two black males who were jump-starting a car at 9.30 a.m. in the morning. That was it. Nothing else. Someone called it in. People, 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 if you're going to be racist, stereotypical jerks, keep it to
1: yourself. This is what the cop is saying. This isn't us, right?
0: That's right. That's right. Just
1: to be clear. (laughs) Okay.
0: (laughs) Other forum users sympathize, meaning that other cops are having the same experience. One forum user tells a story about someone asking the cops to investigate a middle-aged black man fishing in his own community. Heaven forbid. Yeah. Another was asked to respond to a report of two Middle Eastern guys sitting in the same car.
1: Wow, my God.
0: Another laments that, quote, we frequently get calls about black men and women and kids, yes, of kids, walking. <laughs> like WWB which is their code for walking while black, was actually a crime and not a Twitter joke. Federal statistics have shown that you really can get pulled over for driving while black. Psychological and physical violence against minorities isn't just directed toward but, black people. Yeah, go By ahead. the way,
1: before you go on, I just want to mention that there was this awful condemnatory report that came in about the Baltimore police about the unbelievable amount of... Um, Racist behavior in terms of arrests and prosecutions that are just so beyond the pale that the Baltimore police are in shock and they're going to do something about it. So this thing about W.W.B. walking while black is no joke, and it's not. It's in the community. It's in the police department. But at least we're waking up to it, right? I'm cheering myself up here. Okay, go on. There you go. Okay.
0: And now let's hear about the uptick in threats and violence toward Muslims. A few days ago, a Muslim couple was ejected from a plane for saying the word Allah, which means God. And because the husband was sweating. That was it. Yeah.
1: Well, obviously, people without deodorant are automatically dangerous.
0: And if they mention God, yes.
1: That's right. That's
0: right. Okay. And just today, the Washington Post reported that leaders of the Masjid al Sahaba Mosque in Watauga, Texas have grown accustomed to receiving several threatening voicemails on their answering machine each week. Normally the messages are deleted and quickly forgotten at the mosque near Fort Worth. But a message that arrived one recent afternoon was different. The caller identified himself as a local army veteran and a Christian who was, quote, armed to the teeth, unquote. Referring to Islam as a violent religion He accused Muslims of trying to import Sharia law to the United States and called for another Christian crusade. We will cut all your heads off, the caller said. Do you understand me?
1: Nothing violent about that, Christian.
0: Our community is (laughs) fed up with this, he said. During Ramadan, we had someone shining a a laser sight from his rifle at the mosque as well. Violence is also directed toward gays, lesbians, bisexual, and transgender people. Doctors and teachers who work with these teenagers have long warned that they are especially vulnerable to a host of psychological and physical harms. Now, the first national study to identify these high school students and track their health risks confirms those fears. Sexual minority teenagers are indeed at far greater risk for depression, bullying, and many types of violence than their straight peers. Quote, I found the numbers heartbreaking, said Dr. Jonathan Merman, a senior official at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which includes a division that administers this school health survey every two years. The survey found that about 8% of the high school population described themselves as gay, that means either gay, lesbian, or bisexual, which would be 1.3 million students, and that's a lot of kids. And these children were three times more likely than their straight students, Uh, fellow students to have been raped. They skipped school far more often because they did not feel safe. At least a third had been bullied on school property. And they were twice as likely as heterosexual students to have been threatened or injured with a weapon on school property. More than 40% of these students reported they had seriously considered suicide. And 29% had made attempts for suicide in the year before they took the survey. The percentage of those who use various illegal drugs was many times greater than heterosexual peers. And we can go on. We are sick of hearing about people being sick of political correctness. This isn't about correctness. This is about life and death, emotionally and physically, for abused members of our society. And we need to turn this around. We have some positive stories this week, too, however. For instance, even as the Affordable Care Act remains a political flashpoint New research shows it is dramatically improving poor patients' access to medical care in states that have used the law to expand their Medicaid safety net. After just two years of expanded coverage, patients in expansion states are going to the doctors more frequently and having less trouble paying for it. At the same time, the experience in those states suggests better access will ultimately improve patients' health as patients get more regular checkups and seek care for chronic illnesses such as diabetes and heart disease. The health law, often called Obamacare, nevertheless continues to be a major point of dispute in national politics, as it has been since it was passed in 2010. And Republican politicians in many red states still oppose Medicaid expansion, arguing that the program is unaffordable and ineffective. GOP presidential nominee Donald Trump has pledged to repeal the Affordable Care Act. He has offered little indication how he would replace the expanded safety net. These opponents are not looking to improve on Obamacare, just tear it down. Government counts and elections count. Beth?
1: Do you see why I'm depressed? Well, add to that some of the latest insanity. But before we get to the latest insanity, I just want to ask you Helen to share a little bit about what the innerrevolution.org is doing to try to support Muslim children who are going through just this kind of uh, bullying and discrimination. I know I'm putting you on the spot but it just' oh, to no I, today, yeah, I would love, love to talk, talk about.
2: I Go would ahead. love to talk about it you know back in February well it was started even before that after the Riverside, Uh, terrorist act or wasn't Riverside, San Bernardino terrorist act a long time ago uh, maybe back in November or October of last year uh, the interrev.org decided we needed to reach out to mosques of course at your suggestion Um, but it was a great suggestion and we began calling mosques and offering our support and solidarity to stand with them and to support the, the reality that hardly any Muslims are terrorists and that they had our support. And we ended up in February of this year having an event where about 90 Muslim family, you know, kids and adults from several different mosques came to an event called Super Supportive Sundays. And the title of that event was Dealing with Differences. And we went around the room and everybody said, I am Ahmed and I am a person, I am Helen and I am a person and we played cooperative games and we had a wonderful, wonderful experience after which people said how much it meant to them that we reached out to them. It makes me want to cry and how people would talk about how they support them, but they never would do an event where they were invited and and people would say, I know the people here more deeply. After this one event, then I have known them in five years at our own mosque. So it was a very powerful event. And we have gotten involved, especially with the Islamic Center of San Diego, which is the largest mosque in San Diego. And have built a friendship with them and have been asked to stand with them in support of anti-bullying measures at the San Diego Unified School District. And I've been asked to be on a subcommittee with some of the, the Muslim leaders to come up with ideas to present to the school system about how to approach the other children, you know, the children in our idea, of course, is that it isn't just Muslims that, that need to be integrated, it's everybody that we have got to support the ideas of the inner revolution of oneness, accountability, and mutual support, and that that will then, of course, help the Muslim children as well as everybody else. And the next thing that we're doing as an activity with them is that we are doing a Girl Scout event. Uh, Again, with the topic of embracing our differences, uh, honoring our differences, acknowledging them, not pretending that they don't exist, but talking about them and talking about whether they make a difference or not. And having experiences, again, with, with cooperative games and maybe art projects. And we have invited all of the Girl Scout troops in Claremont, San Diego area to come and participate and we're very excited about that as well.
1: That is so fantastic. This is part of what we call the Unleashing the Power of Kids campaign through fitness, cooperation, service and thought and all of our events uh, really bring all that together. We really need our kids to be thinking. I mean people don't think. (laughs)
2: <laughs> absolutely true absolutely true we, uh, they just we, react
1: they just react and we need to, to do that and we need health fitness and we need to discover that cooperation makes us feel better and we need to care about service and we need critical thinking and helen has been doing a, a phenomenal job reaching out with this program and many other programs from the innerrevolution.org so I'm so pleased that uh, I had an opportunity to ask you about that. So that's from the sublime to the uh, hazardous (laughs) to your health. I mean, you know, I try so hard not to become partisan because I really want to look at all of us. And the last time we did a show on the election, it was about the ego. And why we are the way we are and how the ego really is dominating this electoral uh, situation. And that we have a choice between oneness and separation. And what is happening, of course, is that on the presidential level, I mean, unfortunately, the Republican candidate is become the personification of separation. Now, I will not say that the Democrats are the personification of oneness, but there is a lot more oneness. I mean, there is much more of a sense when you just look at the convention. I mean, it is blacks and whites and women and Hispanics and disabled and uh, lesbian and gay and transgender and old and young and whatever. So, you know, the, there is a movement afoot there to, for people to feel their oneness and to try to fight for what is for the highest good of all. Unfortunately, there are a lot of things also about the Democrats that, that are disturbing. I just read a story today about the United States government selling unbelievable amount of arms, oh, I forget. You know, I have no memory, audience, of $1.2 billion or something, including cluster bombs that really should have been uh, outlawed a long time ago. Many nations have outlawed cluster bombs, but we won't outlaw cluster bombs just in case we want to use them. And we're selling them to Saudi Arabia to drop in Yemen. And the number of civilian casualties is horrendous. And we're involved in some kind of a you know, a battle there with our great ally, the great uh democracy of Saudi Arabia, you know, who that not only has great total f- uh, liberation for women, but also, I mean, it, it's just what, uh, you know, anybody who is a um, a critic in Saudi Arabia is flogged, is imprisoned, disappears. Or so, gets beheaded. Uh, gets beheaded. So this is, these are our allies. So, There is a lot, you know, life is complicated and, I, I, you know, we have to find another way to develop a foreign policy. So I am not an apologist for anybody, but unfortunately, Donald Trump is making it harder and harder for me to be neutral. I mean, this week alone, there were two acts on his part, which I think he should be stopped and I'm sure you will agree. The first one was that seemingly offhand remark about around the Second Amendment about gun owners uh, taking care of Hillary Clinton. And it was so yeah, obvious. Yeah,
0: yeah, he said that since uh, the Supreme Court, uh, once it gets stacked with another appointment by Hillary, uh, the gun owners won't have any recourse but to do something else. So he said they'll, they'll have to do something. Well,
1: he said, well, of course the gun owners could do something. It was sort of like that. He said it in an offhand way. And then later they claimed that what he was saying is that they needed to organize, but it was transparent. It was at best a joke. I think that Donald Trump is first and foremost uh, an egotist. And he is first and foremost interested in adulation and getting laughs. And he's like playing to an audience. You know, so he, he's got his crowd, he knows what his crowd likes, and he's going to throw it to them so that they're going to keep cheering him. I think that is about the depth of his political beliefs. But um, So that was a, a dreadful thing to say in a, in a country that is already being ripped apart by violence. And that's one of the reasons that we featured so much news today about this, uh, the violence that is happening in our society. There are so many people who are distraught, who are either economically, emotionally, spiritually bankrupt or feel left out and who are going to grab onto something that's going to give them a modicum of a sense of power. But what he did yesterday even topped that. And some of you have probably heard this, but some of you may not. He said that literally... President Obama is the founder of ISIS. Right. I, I uh, my mouth fell open. Exactly. And this morning he was on a an interview with Hugh Hewitt, who is some kind of conservative radio host, or, and the guy said, "You mean, of course, that he left a vacuum of power that the, right right?" And he said, "No, I mean literally, Obama." is the founder of ISIS. He also threw the World Trade Center in. Uh, I guess that's a retro history because the World Trade Center happened way before Obama was even
0: president. And, and, yes, and he also added that uh, Hillary was co-founder of ISIS. Hillary
1: is the co-founder of ISIS. Now, you take people who are already somewhat agitated, let's put it that way, if they aren't downright deranged— and you give them that kind of you know, belief system, uh, this is even worse than, I've read recently that 72% of Republicans actually believe that President Obama was not born in the United States. Maybe because they're not aware that Hawaii is <laughs> a state, uh, but it's, you know, he's Barack Hussein Obama. He's obviously from somewhere else. And, um, you know, that horrified me. Seventy-two percent of Republicans still believe that Barack Obama is not an American. Uh, It's astounding. And, of course, we know Donald Trump was one of the people who really pushed that idea. So when you have this kind of incendiary of rhetoric, like our president is the founder of our arch enemy, that, to me, is saying our president is committing treason, as is Hillary Clinton. I mean, that would be treason, wouldn't it? Yes. And what does that feed? I mean, this all matters because you can see the state of the electorate. There are many people who are appalled, but unfortunately, there are a lot of people who are distressed and they are buying into this simplistic, kind of notion to explain our problems in the world. And what is that an invitation to? I mean, what do we do with people who commit treason? It's like one of uh, Trump's supporters said that Hillary Clinton should be shot by a, a firing squad. And Trump said nothing about that. In fact, it's like, lock her up, lock her up. So this man is fanning the flames of the most unimaginable kind of retributed violence. And I cannot find anything oneness, accountability, and mutual support to say about him, (laughs) except that (laughs) we all have those qualities within us. We're all ready to blame somebody for situations that are very complex. We want to point the finger to something. But more than that, how many of us have said or done all kinds of stupid things to be loved? You know, yes. I mean, w- women have been wearing high heels forever. I was watching the Democratic Convention, other than Hillary, and uh, maybe one, um, probably Jane Sanders, and I believe the wife of Tim Kaine came on, they weren't wearing you know, these, whatever they, stiletto heels, whatever they're called. But I was, I'm appalled that so many women who are actually talking about women's equality and liberation are walking around in shoes that they could fall over. (laughs) I, I mean, it's gotten ridiculous and we're doing it for admiration. So Donald Trump, I believe that's his main motivation, I believe he is always looking for admiration, and he really doesn't care what it costs. But in his case, he's taken it to an extreme because he's not caring about what it costs him. He doesn't care what it costs others.
2: Have you read the suggestions that he, by this time, knows that he's going to lose by a landslide, but that he doesn't really care because it's going to be good for his business
1: Well, I also read that uh, it's not been good for his business. But I think he's more looking for becoming more and more of a celebrity. I think that Donald Trump doesn't care about the country, the government. He doesn't really want to govern. He wants to be a personality. He wants to be the biggest personality in the country. And he, he has succeeded in doing that. But there is real consequences, Donald. You know that is you. You are you have crossed so many lines, but you don't care as long as it puffs you up
0: and, and if he gets elected president. And if he gets elected president, he'll be the biggest man in the world with the most power at his disposal.
1: Yes, except that I have a feeling that uh, that some of the people in government would have him kidnapped and put into a mental institution and have some uh, clone of Donald Trump's uh, uh, sitting there in the White
2: House, I wouldn't be a bit surprised. I mean,
1: I don't think there is a person and I personally would like to call up Paul Ryan and I said, "Isn't is this enough? Is this enough? Is this enough? Is it enough to call our president a traitor with absolutely no corroborating evidence? This man does not care what he says does not care how much he lies. Now, I did say that we were going to talk on this show about this is not a Trump problem. Why is it the Republican Party the way it is? And why is the, you know, our, is the Democratic Party the way it is? And I do believe that we have to talk about this, but I just, you know, if you're anything like me, you're sitting there, you know, practically in tears every day. Wondering how things could have gotten this bad and how we can stop this insanity.
2: You know, I saw on Facebook, it's just, it's a humorous thing about the whole blame issue. But it's a picture of Abraham Lincoln. It says, new evidence shows that Hillary Clinton actually killed Lincoln. Oh! <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's, you know, it, it's it's the
1: laughingstock. stock. Yeah. Well, we it's are the laughingstock of the world. Absolutely. Except, except that the world has its own right-wing demagogues or left-wing demagogues I or know. any kind of demagogue. You know, we've always thought we were superior, but I think we're really showing the bottom of the barrel. By the way, of course, it is encouraging to see that there are people with some sense of decency. There's an organization called R4C16. It took me quite a while to figure out that that was R14. C-16, meaning Republicans Republicans. for Hillary 2016. And they got over, they they haven't been in existence very long. They have 26,000, over 26,000 Facebook followers. So there are Republicans who are too appalled. But so many of them are believing. I mean, Hillary Clinton has done enough bad things. We don't have to dump the kitchen sink on her. We don't have to... Uh, you know, ignite such venom and ignorance, ignorance on this. uh, I mean, it's uh, anyway, I'm appalled. So maybe, (laughs) maybe we should shut me up and have me go on and talk about what this is saying about our world. Well, one thing I'd like
2: to have you address. Yeah. (laughs) Excuse me. I have to cough for a second. I'm going to go off.
1: Okay, so let's all cough with Helen so she doesn't feel alone. Okay. (coughs) Okay. (laughs) Um,
2: That it's scary that hopefully Clinton will become president. And what is going to happen with all of this
1: exaggerated venom that has been built up toward her? Exactly. I have been thinking about the same thing, Helen. You know, what happens after uh, Election Day? And I'm afraid. You know, a very similar kind of thing happened with Obama. B- Obama was elected with a, you know, a huge population. And immediately, the right wing uh, started to not criticize him for things that are reasonable, thought out, saying, well, I don't agree with this. But so many of them went on the, you know, uh, he's a Muslim, like that should make any difference. Uh, you know, he's this, he's that, he's the other thing, he's not born in the United States. And, uh, you know, I, I know it's going to keep happening. It's not over. And that is the critical point. And I think that the whole point of looking at the parties and about the state of our consciousness is so critical because it's not good enough to win at the polls, although, for God's sake, go out and vote. And whatever you do, don't vote for Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> I, I
2: agree I, with you completely, though, that you know we have to be beginning to think about what are we going to do after the election to deal with all of this unconscious behavior that is
1: has risen to the surface with the Trump campaign. Yes, and was there before, of course. Exactly. Um, now, uh, I would like to, to talk a little bit about that that point. But So it seems to me, when you think about the Republican Party and how Trump came to be a Republican candidate, even though he is diametrically opposed to a lot of what the Republicans believe in, um, of course, it all started, well, I guess you could say it all started with the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. Voting Rights, I think, was 64, and the Civil Rights Act was 65, or vice versa.
0: It's, it's vice versa. It was of The 64 course. Civil Rights Act was the very beginning.
1: Nobody ever expects me to remember a date. So, anybody, or if you do, that's because you haven't listened to the show. So, um, anyway, I'm trying to get my humor back. Haha. Well... Um, You know, there was a time when the Democrats (coughs) were considered the the party of the southern white racists. And when I say the southern white racists, I don't mean to malign these people. But in fact, there was still from slave times uh, a huge disproportionate... um, difference in power between blacks and whites. There has been throughout the nation, but it was particularly obvious in the South. When I went to the South, it was in the early 70s, I believe, to visit a friend of mine who came from Mississippi, who is in our political organization. And I can't remember now if this was in the late 60s, early 70s, but um, I went into a a little grocery store and there were, there were black people coming into the store along with me and they literally stepped back and let me go first. That spoke volumes. I mean, even if I didn't know about segregation in water fountains and toilets and everything else, that spoke volumes because I could feel the fear that black uh, southerners had of white people, that they had been compelled to be subservient for so long that I who had absolutely no intention of behaving in that way was caught up in that wave of energy and fear and it was, it was appalling and it was devastating. And when the Mississippi Freedom Democrats came to the Democratic Convention in 1964 and we talked about this I think on the last show that we talked about politics on which was I think a couple of shows ago. Um, they were like smashing this whole thing because the uh, Southern Democrats were basically people who were supporting Jim Crow, the uh, the uh, segregationist laws following the Civil War because in the Civil War, Abe Lincoln was a Republican. You'd never know that he was from the same parties, some of the people who have followed him. But anyway, there you have it. So that was the alliance that we had... Northern liberals and uh, and Southern conservatives. But that started to fall apart when Lyndon Johnson, who happened to be a Southern white, and we don't know how, quote, enlightened Lyndon Johnson was. He certainly wasn't enlightened about the Vietnam War. But nevertheless, he, thank God, was able to push through this really important legislation that allowed... Uh, black people to begin to emerge from the kind of oppression that they were suffering from, which you can see still exists from the news that we were sharing today, right? And I saw the same thing when I lived in New York City, that I had a a relationship with a black man who was stopped by the police for walking around in a white neighborhood in a suit. (laughs) This guy was... It did not look like a rapper or anything like that. He was a very highly educated, uh, he wasn't an American black. Um, So, you know, he even had that suave debonair energy, right? But I'll tell you something, he went through it, I went through it with him. So, uh, it was appalling the amount of racism that I saw then, but even in the North. So, uh, there's nothing like, oh, racism is a product of the South. But we're talking about a historical... E- transformation. And when the civil rights movement started to build inroads and the Democratic Party started to have more and more Latinos the and blacks and so on, there was a move uh, to the Republican Party with the Reagan Democrats uh, who were on the conservative side. And these, of course, were these famous white working class and some white working class men Now, here's where the sad story is, because the Democrats are responsible for this. The Democrats are responsible for not having a progressive agenda and not doing anything to help working-class people. And uh, so that they left a vacuum for, you know, the Republican Party. And as white workers began to feel very threatened by things like affirmative action— they didn't feel like they had any place to go. And they started moving over, especially you know during the Reagan era, to supporting the, the Republican Party. So the Democrats are as responsible for the existence of Donald Trump as the Republicans are. And the Republican Party that became its own kind of coalition of um, unholy coalition— because the Republicans brought together people who were in the counter-revolution against gays and the liberalization, you know, the the social conservatives brought them together because they hated the Democrats. Brought them together with the quote fiscal conservatives. Read that as billionaires and corporate interests who are trying to organize the the economy for their benefit, which they have done. With Democrats and Republicans, by the way. So an unholy alliance between the people like Paul Ryan and the white people who felt like they had no place to go because nobody was c- addressing their concerns when we were finally dealing with affirmative action. But they weren't addressing the issues of the white working class and were allowing the uh, unions to be uh, demolished and so on. And you add to that, so we have the social conservatives who hate the Democrats and uh, the white working class. And then we have the wealthy, right? And the big corporations. And that became the Republican Party. I mean, they don't really have that much in common, do they? I, I, you know, there are lots and lots of fiscal conservatives that are socially liberal. Many of them are now showing up in the Libertarian Party, right? They say, "I don't care what you do; just do it in your own house." But see, this is how this is what happens when you make a deal with the devil. And we saw the allowance of the um, anti-choice movement, the um, the uh, violence against people who were providing abortions. And no matter which way you see the abortion issue, you cannot deny the fact that abortion is going to happen one way or the other, and it's either going to be illegal and dangerous or it's going to be legal and can be therefore monitored, and you can actually regulate it to some degree. But, you know, it was okay for these people to be attacking people who were abortion doctors or or women who were desperate for a, a way out from unwanted pregnancy. And so there was an allowance of that. There is an allowance of racism in the Republican Party that, um, you know, uh, uh, attracted people like a a David Duke who's ready to run for office, you know, from the uh, KKK because they were voting for the Republicans. So you're not going to do something that's going to make them upset you're not gonna do anything that's gonna upset one of your other constituencies, which also allowed for the, um, the coalition to deny climate change, because you had the, the corporations that didn't want to deal with the expense of dealing with climate change, the fossil fuel industry, and so on and so on. So they didn't mind being in the same party as the people who are racist, Not that they necessarily felt that way themselves or that they necessarily felt that way about abortion or about the LGBT community or anything else. But it was like, oh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And this party coalesced against the most ugly consciousness. And there has been... Did you, say,
0: uh, did you say it coalesced against or coalesced in the most ugly consciousness?
1: In, yeah, I, I, if I said I must have misspoken. They coalesced in the most ugly consciousness against those people who were trying to fight for oneness, for caring, for, the, for women's rights, for human rights, and so on, and who were in backlash against what was happening. But on the other hand, there was no reaching out to the people who were being called into the Republican Party. Like, I remember very clearly when people started freaking out about affirmative action. There is still a huge illusion out there that it is because of black people and immigrants that white workers are struggling. That is not the case. And, in fact, we are going to be having, on our show in a couple of weeks, two guys who have put out a report about wealth disparity between the black workers and white workers, but it, it's the story. It's blame somebody, you know, divide and conquer, divide and conquer. And what you're seeing is the Republican Party is coming apart at the seams because it was an unseemly alliance to begin with. And the Democrats have done the same thing. It's like, okay, if you're against so-and-so, you're with me. And what I'm hoping for and what we're hoping that we're seeing to some degree in that Democratic Party is that there is a genuine movement towards oneness where blacks and Muslims and Hispanics and LGBT and so on are actually seeing that they are one. And we, we've seen hints of that. And I wrote a Huffington Post blog about that, about the, the, the Democrat. All you have to do is look at the people there. And you can see that the Democratic Party is no longer a white male party that is bringing in minorities, but that it is the party of everyone because it includes white men and white women and black people and so on. And I'm hoping against hope that out of this, there is a stronger and stronger and stronger movement to reclaim oneness as a real Spiritual and common sense value for our nation, and you see another thing is that the left in general has left left spirituality to the right wing. There are many Christians who are very supportive of social change, like Sister Simone, the Catholic nun who is on our show, and all those incredible priests in Latin America who were revolutionaries, uh, and you know, even are uh, the Pope from Argentina, you know, who was uh, for social justice. I don't agree with a lot of his positions on women and so on, but he clearly this is a guy who's for social justice. Um, so there are, you know, who said that only right-wing Christians are religious or can be? That we can't also have a spirituality. We are about oneness, accountability, and mutual support. That is the way that the world works best. And it is also the essence of spirituality. Well, I think I went off on a tirade, didn't I? (laughs) Let you say say something or ask something, Helen.
2: Well, it reminds me again on Facebook. There's a, I can't remember if it's the, christians on the left or the leftist christians um but it's a big movement and they post a lot of things saying exactly yes
1: well you should let me know who these people are maybe we'll have them on the show that's a good idea you know helen you're on facebook i'm not you gotta when you see people like that you ring the bell okay i want to hear that that's really really important I can appreciate there are people who have different spiritual and religious uh, belief systems. There may be some Christians who devoutly believe whatever it is that they believe. But when I see that turning into abuse of others, I have to stand up and say, you are not following in Jesus' footstep. You are not doing unto others what you would have others do unto you. You're not caring for the least of our brethren. This is not Christianity. I don't care if you're a a, a, a radical Muslim or a radical Jew or a radical Christian or a radical Hindu or whatever the heck you are. If you're discriminating and not acting out of oneness, you have broken the first commandment.
2: Yes. And we have a caller, Irene from San Diego.
3: Okay. Hi, Beth. Hi. Hi. I am just wondering, I, I, you've given us a wonderful summary, but um, historically, this if we put this into context, it feels like a global shift to me, that the, um, the hegemony, the uh, sort of uh, importance of the United States of America and its systems... Uh, economic and political is is being we're we're showing the underside of everything and uh the failure to represent for for our democracy to represent our people in a real way and so it it just seems like a, a time of great global shift, and a lot of that is the destruction of systems and the emergence of other systems, and we can either be hopeful that the systems that are emerging are going to be more aligned with oneness and more true to their... Um, the statement of what they believe.
1: Okay, I'd like to make a comment on what you're saying, Irene. I think, you know, you're bringing up an important point that there is a shift that we can no longer be the master of the world because we don't have the power. I mean, the British Empire fell, the Spanish Empire fell, the French Empire fell, where our empire is falling too. But, um, you know, and I would say that in terms of systems, that there's something very interesting about that. Because when we look at Russia, for example, or we look at Saudi Arabia, or many other nations in the world, we don't see something that we want. We don't see democracy at work in a way that makes us feel comfortable. We see the oppression of women. Uh, there is a horror and a fear of the Chinese and what they called communism, which is nothing resembling communism. And I think that people can easily be revved up because we are afraid of that. I don't want that either. But what I do think we need to do is to be able to develop a synergy with others because we have found that when we are in synergy with other nations and other peoples, we can help to support other kinds of systems to emerge in their countries. So it isn't simply that, well, we're losing power, and that means everything is going to go to hell in a handbasket. First of all, when we had power, we were imperialist. I mean, there's no question about it. We had our own little empire building in uh, Central America, especially, you know, in uh, South, uh, the Americas themselves, i mean we we took over the uh, the continent, except for Mexico, but we took a big piece of ex- Mexico, we took over. And we have been uh, very um, you know v- very grabby. this is capitalism, right? We've had this capitalist system. We don't have to have a capitalist relationship with everyone else on the planet. We need a mutually supportive, economic system. See, I do not believe that trade is a bad thing, but I do believe that trade is a bad thing if we allow our own workers to be displaced with no other options, and when we allow foreign workers to be exploited, which is exactly what's happening. So something completely new and synergistic needs to emerge, and from that we might be able to continue to support others. The fascinating thing about immigration is that it goes both ways. We learn something when we go to other nations, (laughs) and when we receive people from other nations, not only are we getting the value of their intelligence and expertise, but in addition to that, we are uh, uh, having contact with people who then go back to their own nations and say, you know, I liked that. If there's something good about America, they will like that and they will take it back. But if we're prejudiced and racist, they won't. Uh, we have two more callers, and we're almost out right. of time. So, right. Helen, let's run through. Thanks, Irene.
2: We've got Rose on uh, from Ramona, California, calling first.
1: Hi. Um, I just
3: wanted to say I'm with you. I'm as upset and I cry qu- quite often about what's going on and I believe in accountability and I was thinking this morning about something I heard recently about um Katie Kirk had to be um escorted with uh you know, police or something out of a um rally because um Donald Trump had pointed to her and said she lies. Oh, maybe Yeah, I know. It made me think about the, um, the amendment that came about freedom of speech and how you can't yell fire in a theater yeah. because it incites danger. Yes. And I was thinking, gosh, you know, shouldn't somebody Stop say this Donald is an incitement
1: Trump. of danger, right? I agree um, with you. I agree with you, Rose. If I had the power, I would start a movement right now that yeah. said Donald Trump needs to be removed from the race because he's, he's, he's uh, inciting violence.
3: He's inciting violence. He is.
1: He is. And and people are too distraught to be able to look past it. This is going to feed the flames. So thank you for that. All right, Helen, let's try to squeeze in our last. We've got
2: Chris in Vista. Welcome, Chris.
1: Hi. Thanks for having me on the show.
3: I'm with you too, Beth and Helen. This is so important. I know you have such a limited amount of time, Beth. Could you help speak to our hearts? To help, Let's, us find, to help us find the space to change.
1: Thank you. Well, I, it always starts with looking at our own bigotry, our own intolerance, and the way that we use emotions in order to manipulate others. And that is something that Donald Trump does in space. There's something to be learned about that for ourselves. How many times have I used my emotions in order to manipulate others? I don't want to do that. Secondly, I don't want to use... Uh, I don't want to incite violence against anyone. I just wrote a Huffington Post blog about how, as, as Trump's creating a lynch mob, are we becoming a lynch mob lynching Trump? I don't want to lynch Trump, but what I want to do is come back to oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And people have to be held accountable for what they do. And we need to stop those who are abusing others. And once we stop them, we can hug them. And if I were in a room with Donald Trump, I would sit and I'd hold his hand and I'd say, whatever happened to you, that you had to do that. So we have to keep moving forward and we have to keep sticking to our principles. We need to promote more love and connection in our world and do that with find a way to reach those Trump supporters Now, during and after this election, because they need something and we need to speak to their hearts. Thank you. So, James.
0: Beth, I believe it's time now to talk about next week. Okay, next week's show, If Gangs Can Make Peace, Why Can't We? An interview with Riza Islam about an amazing gang summit and what it means for us. History was made as rival Southern California gang leaders met July the 17th to discuss making peace on the streets. Some 2,500 people came to the summit, including rival gang members, cops, gang interventionists, families, and friends of victims, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti, Police Chief Charles Beck, and religious leaders of diverse denominations. Though packed with rival gang members, not a single act of violence took place. What do you think would have happened at a similar summit of Democrats and Republicans these days? What sometimes happens in our own houses? If gangs can do it, why can't we? Let's talk to Riza Islam from United in Peace, one of the sponsors of the event, and a man who has been working hard to bring peace to the inner cities. How are gang members coming together? Is the process continuing? Is it making a difference on the street? And can we learn from it? With so much violence in the world, let's learn more about positive developments where we least expect them. So come and join us. And now for a final
3: word.
1: I would like to remind you that if you are feeling sick about the state of consciousness in the world, you are not alone. And there is still a fight going on for oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And if you're interested at all, come take a look at our group TheInnerRevolution.org, we are trying to make change real, positive change, deep change, not superficial change, not the kind of change that somebody's going to backlash against tomorrow, but I mean real change of the human heart. So, Helen, I want to thank you. Is there anything you'd like to share before we close?
2: Well, I just want to thank you so much because even in the darkest times, you always bring the light And it just touches my heart every time. And I'm so grateful for you and for your commentary on the world because it always ends with that.
1: Thank you so much. And if you agree with Helen, please pass on this show. God bless and see you next week.
0: Thank you for joining us for this edition of Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Interrevolutionary TV on VoiceAmerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.